And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Attention, people of Earth. Do not resist us. All who oppose us shall be annihilated. We command the most powerful army of monsters in the universe. They are sure to defeat your Earth monsters. All those who are hearing this are now under the control of the Earth Destruction Directive. 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 Hello, everyone, and welcome to Earth Destruction Directive, a Daikaiju podcast. I am your host once again, Mr. Luke Giaconetti. Want to thank everyone for downloading and listening to the show today. We've got a very good show for you today. I hope everyone enjoyed the last episode where I took a look at 1964's Mothra vs. Godzilla, as well as the final issue, number 20, of Marvel's Shogun Warriors. As I said, we've got a real good show today. We're going to be taking a look at uh, the next two episodes of the classic tokusatsu TV show Ultraman, as well as the final appearance of our beloved Shogun Warrior pilots in Fantastic Four number 226. First, a little bit of news. The next wave of Bandai's Ultra Hero Ultraman X toys are coming out uh, right about now, actually. Uh, These are Spark Doll-sized vinyl toys, like previous releases. And the new ones are Mold Spectre, who was a character originally from the spin-off show Andromelos, but is reappearing in Ultraman X. Mecha Gomera. Gomez Type S. Now, Gomez was the first Ultra Kaiju appearing way back in Ultra Q, and uh, he appears in Ultraman X in his upgraded S form, although, frankly, he looks just like Gomez. So, if you just want a Gomez, you can pick this one up. I'm definitely getting that one. And then, finally, Surugi Damaga, who is a DX one. Damaga was the first monster that Ultraman X fought, and this is an upgraded form of... uh, of Damaga. Now you can find these at all the usual import toy places, hlj.com, amiami.com, and the like. I I usually use HLJ, but that's just me. That's not an endorsement. So go check these out. They're about 500 yen a piece, so get them for about four, three, three and a half to four bucks a piece. They're they're pretty neat, and uh, they won't put you back a lot. You just gotta, just gotta, you know, which means that you end up buying a bunch of them. At least it does in my case. Coming in spring of 2016 from Diamond Select is the Showa Mechagodzilla Pizza Cutter. Now, uh, we, sim- we previously have had a Godzilla Pizza Cutter, so this makes sense to have a Mechagodzilla one. You can order this from Previews or any shop or website that uses Previews as their, uh, uh, their tool for ordering. It's $14.99, and has, uh, it's very nice because it's all metal, because it, it's the Showa Mechagodzilla, so it looks really nice, you know if you need to have a Daikaiju pizza cutter. Uh, and it's coming out in spring of 2016, so uh, keep an eye out for that one. And uh, hat tip to SciFiJapan.com for the uh, for that one. Finally, would like to mention the uh, comic book miniseries Gunsuits. Now, this recently just finished up from American Gothic Press. That's the same outfit that is publishing uh, the Project Nemesis comic. And I'll have a little bit more about Project Nemesis later on in the show. Uh, but uh, this is a miniseries that is written by Paul Tobin, illustrated by P.J. Holden, and it uh, just finished up a couple months ago, so the trade paperback is coming out in November, so you can uh, definitely order that through previews or through your local comic shop. It is a mecha versus monsters story with a twist involving parallel universes. Actually, it's pretty neat. Uh, I'd, I'd like to... I, what I've seen of it is very good, so I'm definitely going to try and pick this one up, so I'd recommend uh, checking out Gunsuits uh, as well. Uh, all right, I'm going to take a quick break right now, and we'll be back getting into the first of two episodes of Ultraman here on Earth Destruction Directive. 
Hey, Paul, what's up? Ah, not much. What's going on? I'm, I'm just a little confused lately. I... Yeah, what else is new? Well, you know, m- more than usual. I try to go to get the shows that we just put up, and I was having problems finding them. Well, we having trouble finding Well, I couldn't find Back to the Bins. I couldn't find Avengers Spotlight. Of course, you can only find those when I actually edit them. <clears throat> and, um, <laughs> oh, you took the words know, right out of my mouth. They're on the feed, Bill. Yeah, I know. That's where I went. I went to the feed, but they weren't there. You know, you got to go to the feed. You got to go to the Back to the Bins feed. The Back to the Bins feed? What's yeah, that? Back to the Bins feed. You got to go to iTunes. You look for look up Back to the Bins, and you subscribe to the Back to the Bins feed. But I went to Two True Freaks. Yeah, we're on that feed, too. What? Where? On the feed. Okay, wait a minute, wait a minute. So you're saying that we're on... All right, so if I wanted to go find the shows that we've done, I'm going to go on to iTunes, and I'm going to click on Back to the Bins, and I'll find Back to the Bins and Avengers Spotlight in the feed. Exactly. I don't even know what I'm talking about! Bill... You go to the feed, you subscribe to the show, you subscribe to whichever show you want, and then you get it. It's that what simple. Sh- you just got to go to the feed. What show do I want? Back to the Bins. Where? An Avengers Spotlight. Oh, I'm so confused. They're on iTunes. They're on what? TwoTrueFreaks.com. You want them, uh, you get them. They're you all got there them? For you. All the oh. shows are there. They're still all available, Bill. All right, on the so... Feed. The feed. If you say feed one more time, I'm going to break your arm. Oh, Scott, could you tell him? Hey, man, don't don't drag me into this because uh, it's no skin off my ass. I'm on all the feeds. <laughs> Bastard. All right, we are back here on Earth Destruction Directive. We're going to be taking a look right now at Ultraman Episode 11, which is titled The Ruffian from Outer Space, also known as The Rascal from Outer Space. And the Ruffian from Outer Space first aired on September 25th, 1966, on TBS. And goes a little something like this. Hoshino and his friends find a tiny meteor which, incredibly, transforms into anything the person holding it at the time can imagine. However, it will only keep its form until the thinker's thoughts begin to wander. Hoshino turns the space rock over to the science patrol for safekeeping. Further study is approved, and Dr. Yamamoto of the Science Center announces that it is a mineral with with biological elements. But after the press conference, a man with a limp uses a portable radio speaker to will the rock to come to him, and he steals it away to a seaside hotel. The Science Patrol is mobilized, as in the wrong hands, the space rock could be a lethal weapon. But the man isn't evil, just mischievous. He uses the space rock to create a bizarre monster called Gango. The bipedal Gango is covered with lumpy scales, has a wide, toothy mouth, metal clamps for hands, and ears which look like radar dishes. But the man does not use Gango for evil purposes, instead playing practical jokes on the staff and guests of the hotel, laughing the whole time. The man gets a little carried away, though, when he wishes Gango to grow giant, which he does, from inside the hotel. The man is struck by falling debris and knocked out, and Gango stomps his way through the city, doing as he pleases. The science patrol hits the scene along with a JSDF artillery unit, but they do little to Gango except blasting off one of his ears, making him even angrier. Hayata finally transforms into Ultraman and tries to stop the monster. The <clears throat> battle 
is not exactly a struggle, as Gango is a coward who doesn't want to fight. Ultraman changes tactics, tickling the monster to escape his grip, and trying to deal with him non-violently. But while the science patrol tries to rouse the man who thought up Gango, knowing that he will vanish once the man is awake again, the battle draws on, and Ultraman's color timer eventually goes off. Finally, the science patrol is able to bring the man back to consciousness, and Gango disappears, changed back into the space rock. Ultraman then takes the rock back into deepest space, where it, presumably, could do no more harm. Uh, not, a, uh, not a super serious episode here, but uh, one that's certainly a lot of fun with a uh, very unique-looking monster. So let's get right into the notes here. Uh, the plot starts out like something from a kiddie show, with uh, Hoshino and his friends finding this rock that could, they turn into different things. Um, one of them turns it into a race car set, one of them turns it into a cake, you know, a girl turns it into a piano. It And so it, it seems like, okay, it's kind of a kiddie show, and it actually kind of stays that way through the running life. It's mo- almost like a, um, you know, a kiddie episode of a show that can, you know, pendulum back and forth between being serious and being not so serious. And, uh, you know, it's it's a good mix-up, and it's not, it's not um, juvenile just because it's kind of a kiddie show plot. Now, speaking of the cake, it's actually a very neat effect when they create the cake out of the space rock, because it's done with stop motion, as we see the cake slowly being built up from the bottom layer of cake to the middle layer of icing to the top layer of cake to the next level of the cake and the next, uh, or tier of the cake, I should say, and the next tier of the cake, and then frosting around it and decorating. And it's done with a very simple stop motion effect, but it's actually very effective at showing this. It's a neat little uh, effect. Similarly, the piano is also created via stop motion, but there's not as many components that they put into it. So the cake is the one that stands out. It's it's just rare to see stop motion effects like that, even in a crude sort of way, done in a tokusatsu show. So that was very, uh, very amusing to me. Dr. Yamamoto describes the space rock as a mineral with biological elements. Now, this is the first, what I consider truly, you know, air quotes up to the Mike oddball monster of this series, because so far they've just been kind of traditional giant monsters or space aliens, whereas this one is one that works on, you know, it, it's it's not really classifiable. Gango, or the, the space rock that becomes Gango, is, is this mineral that also is alive. So it's kind of this... It's, it kind of straddles both sides of the coin in that sense. So it's a, the first of the oddball ones. We would get many more such oddball monsters rather than just, you know, legendary beasts or invaders from outer space, but they are less common than the two more prevalent types. During the press conference uh, with uh, Dr. Yamamoto, one of the reporters asks how it works, and so Dr. Yamamoto describes it, and he says, oh, wish for whatever you want. And so the reporter wishes for a bride. And he's beaming as this, uh, you know, young girl in a wedding dress walks with him, and they're, they they play the, the 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 bridal march. It's it's just in case you forgot this was the Showa era of Japan. That that's all the guy wants is to get married. You know, and it actually turns into a funny beat because apparently, the uh, the person whose army took was not the bride. It was just some random older guy. When the space rock reverts back to being a space rock, so that was kind of funny. But him, him having the the bride, it's like, oh my goodness, that's just too funny, you know. It's it's so uh, telling for the era that it was produced, and it's really amusing. Now later, after the press conference, our unnamed villain, who has planted a uh, radio receiver in the room, communicates with the space rock 
via the radio. Now, Dr. Yamamoto had already told us that this rock communicated via telepathy. So how does telepathy work over the radio? I'm not really sure how they can pull that off. I mean, he's just saying, yes, melt, turn to liquid, turn to liquid, now turn into a rocket and fly to me. It's like, is he thinking that strongly that his thoughts are going through the radio? I mean, that, that doesn't really work, especially since Yamamoto already said that you have to be right near the rock within only a few meters for your thoughts to be picked up by it. So it's kind of a plot hole, but, you know, otherwise we don't have the rest of the story, so you kind of have to just go with it. Uh, Gango himself is a reuse of the Bemular suit. He has a modified head to have the ears, and he has arms. He has long arms, unlike the little um, T-Rex-style arms that Bemular has. He has full-length arms that end in clamps, metal clamps. He also has no tail. Now, looking at the material of the arms and the fact that they don't have monster hands, they've got the metal clamps, what I suspect happened was that the tail was removed from the Bemular suit and cut into long sleeves to make the arms, and then just sewed up. And that's why there's no hands. They just put the little clamps on the end. Uh, very economical. I mean, it Gango looks different enough from Bemular that it's okay. But, I mean, once you see his uh, his mouth, especially, his big toothy mouth that kind of like hinges open and close, it's like, yeah, that's Bemular right there. So they, they make a good pair. Uh, Gango, interestingly enough, is one of the monsters featured in the opening credits, kind of in that op art style. Uh, you can tell because he's got the, uh, you see the big uh, radar dishes on his on his ears, so thought that was clever. One of the pranks that uh, the man has Gango do in the hotel is as a photographer poolside taking pictures of, uh, of these women that are hopping up out of the pool, and then Gango hops up and everybody freaks out. And uh, now this may not seem like it is worth mentioning, except it is the return to Earth Destruction Directive of Bikini Girls. Now, uh, these are, you know, 1966 Japanese bikinis, so they're not like, you know, uh, they're not the most revealing, but still Bikini Girls. So uh, that's always a plus in my book. The Science Patrol asks for an artillery unit to come out to help them. The artillery units which come to help them is the A-Cycle light ray gun from the movie Monster Zero. Now, I'm a big fan of Monster Zero, the A-Cycle uh, light ray gun, one of the predecessors to the uh, traditional Mazer cannon. But it's like, oh my goodness, I love that. It's just so great to see this this prop getting reused. Monster Zero was uh, released a year prior, so Subarai clearly had access to the prop. And uh, just great to see it crop up here. It doesn't, it's not super effective at one point. Gango kicks them both, and they both go flying. And then uh, he, he, you know, he, he picks one up later and tries to throw it, and it ends up hitting him in, himself in the head with it. So it, it's used for comedy effect, but it's still nice to see a classic prop reused there. Now, as I, as I um, kind of articulated in the review, the fight is for laughs. Uh, Ultraman is flying around at the beginning of the fight, so Gango puts his arms up like he's going to fly, jumps in the air, and falls down. Um, at one point, he throws Ultraman to the ground and then goes and sits on him. It's the old uh, fat kid technique from the schoolyard. It's like, I'll sit on you. It's like, oh, crap, he means it. Uh, then later, they're grappling together, and Ultraman tickles him to escape, and Gango starts dancing around because Gango's clearly ticklish. So, uh, you know, this clearly this fight is not meant to be serious. It continues the lighthearted comedy aspects of the episode very well. One of the best comedy beats in the fight, though, uh, they're, they, the set they're fighting on is a little seaside town. Like I said, it was a seaside hotel. So there's the big pool of water representing the the, uh, the lake or the ocean here. 
And uh, Gango's standing in front of it, and Ultraman charges at him and goes to diving tackle him. And Gango ducks, sending Ultraman flying through the air to crash into the water. It is really, really funny. And then Ultraman continues the mature level of fighting by splashing Gango back. So it's like, <laughs> it's, like it's two, two eight-year-olds fighting here during dress-up time. So, And as I said, Gango does try to throw the A-cycle light ray tank, hitting himself in the head, much to his own chagrin. So uh, it, it's an amusing episode. It's like, I like Ultraman's color timer comes on just because Gango keeps running away from him. It's like, I've only got three minutes here. We got, I can't have you run away from me. Come on. So, I mean, Ruffians Matter Space, a silly episode. No doubt about that. But definitely one which showed a lot of character for both Ultraman and the Monster Gango. It's a, it's a, it's, it's a blast to watch. The humor actually working for the most part. There's nothing really kind of forced or, you know, capital K comedy, as we like to say. So it's, and, and Gango's a memorable monster, and his personality really stands out and is amusing. Plus, the effects are, are generally pretty good, you know, that we get to see Gango smash up the, the city some and actually tear down some buildings. Not in a malicious way, he's sort of just playing around because he's a goof, but, you know, it's still a nice effects. And re-seeing the uh, A-Cycle Light Ray tank again was, uh, was a treat for me. So definitely check this one out. As with all the Ultraman episodes, you can find it on Hulu uh, for free. You don't need Hulu Plus. And then, um, so give it a, you know, I, th I think it's worth watching. I think you'll get a kick out of it. It certainly, uh, was amusing for me to rewatch it. Uh, so I'm going to take a real quick break and we'll be right back with episode 12 of Ultraman here on Earth Destruction Directive. Ultraman will be right back after these messages. You like cheap comic books, right? Well, I'm Professor Allen. And I talk about cheap comic books on the Quarterbin Podcast. In every episode, I'll dissect a single comic from my collection, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for the issue. Forget about $4 new comics that you can read in four minutes, or crossover events that can cost 100 bucks to collect. Join me in the Quarterbin, where even bad comics are a bargain, and good ones are a steal. The Quarterbin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network. Visit us at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com or search Relatively Geeky or Quarterbin Podcast in iTunes. I guarantee it'll be worth every penny. Now, back to Ultraman. And we're back on Earth Destruction Directive. Ultraman episode 12 is entitled Cry of the Mummy and originally aired on October the 2nd, 1996 on Tokyo Broadcast System and is the coming of mummy monster Dodongo. In a remote cave, Dr. Iwamoto has discovered a 7,000-year-old mummy and taken him to the Science Center for observation and study. While examining the cavern, Hayata, Ide, and Arashi observe a strange cave painting depicting a towering four-legged monster. Late that night at the Science Center, the electrical devices in the laboratory where the mummy has been examined come to life, injecting the body with power and reviving the mummy man. The monster stalks the halls of the Science Center, strangling one guard to death and blasting another with powerful golden eye beams. The mummy man escapes the Science Center and then flees to a sewage plant, killing two more guards along the way. 
The science patrol are called in to help the local police. But as they enter the, the sewage plant, Captain Muramatsu is asked by Dr. Iwamoto to take the mummy man alive, as there is much that can be learned from a 7,000-year-old man. Inside, the police and science patrol try to restrain the mummy man, but to no avail, as the monster uses his tremendous strength and eye beams to lethal effect. One police officer is cornered and opens fire, leading the others to do so as well. The mummy man shrugs off the attacks, so it is up to Captain Muramatsu to use his super gun, killing the monster to spare the other officers. Back at the cave, the earth trembles and shakes. As the mummy man dies, the monster Dodongo bursts forth, a golden and green mix of a dragon and a sphinx, with golden wings and rows of sharp teeth. Dodongo chases the workers away from the dig site, and then stomps off to a nearby mining operation, where he uses his own I-beams to blast the site and set it ablaze. The science patrol quickly flies to the site in the jet VTOL, and a plan is made. Arashi will wear Ide's new barrier machine, a personal force field generator, in order to get close enough to Dodongo to use the spider shot. Deploying as close as he dared get, Arashi proved his aim true with the spider shot and took out one of Dodongo's eyes, all the while protected by the barrier machine. But while the force field protected Arashi, it did not stop Dodongo from blasting a nearby outcropping of rocks, the debris of which hit Arashi in the head, knocking him out. Ide, braving the searing beams, runs to Arashi's side and took up the spider shot, and manages to take out the monster's other eye. Now blind, Dodongo stomps about in a rage, flattening anything in his path, prompting Hayata to find a secluded spot and change it to Ultraman. Ultraman jumped onto Dodongo's back like the monster was a bucking bronco, but he was shortly thrown off. The battle was brief but fierce. Ultraman hesitated to use Specium Ray on the wounded monster, but when Dodongo charged him in a rage, Ultraman fires, knocking the beast to the ground, where it convulses and dies. Later, Dr. Iwamato talks with the captain and Fuji, who lament that neither the mummy man nor Dodongo would have had to die had the mummy not been removed from the cave and revived in the first place. Much more serious episode this time out than previously, and uh, I think a really good one, a very a nicely constructed episode. We get uh, you know quite a lot of uh, human-level action before we get to the monster fight, and uh, kind of an ambiguously moral ending, which I think is, is a a nice touch in a science fiction series. I really like this one. Let's get into the notes. Now, the Mummy Man, he's never called that in the episode, but that is his official name, according to Subaraya. When he comes back to life, we see him sitting in, or laying down on the slab in the laboratory, and all the switches and knobs for the electrical equipment begin to move on their own. And this is never explained. Now, the way I kind of know prize it is, he's a mummy. So maybe he's got some kind of magical powers that allows him to reach out with his mind and turn these switches and knobs so that he can be revitalized. It's never said one way or the other, but the character of Mummy Man behaves very much like a traditional, what I would occasionally call a Universal Monsters style mummy, so I'm willing to accept that explanation, and it works with the story, so uh, no prize awarded to myself on that one. As I said, the Mummy Man is all classic mummy stuff. He shambles about the, the science center. He chokes one guard to death. They shoot him with bullets. He's completely impervious. He's strong enough to throw men around. I mean, this is very much like a uh, this is very much like a classic Karis 
uh, mummy film from either Universal or the, the Hammer remake, to the point that Dr. Awamoto says at one point he is alive in death, which I'm pretty sure is an actual line from one of the Universal uh, monster movie, Universal mummy movies, excuse me. I really liked the front half of this episode with the mummy stuff. I'm a big fan of a classic, you know, shambling mummy as a monster, and so this uh, take on it, in, um, in an Ultraman episode is, is unexpected, but it's really fun, and it works really nicely. One odd similarity to the previous episode, telepathy plays a role in this story. Here, the Mummy Man and Dodongo share a telepathic link. Uh, much like, um, you know, Gango would, the Space Rock would uh, have a telepathic link with whoever was near it. Now, Dodongo the monster would not appear again, but his uh, style of construction, the way his body's made, kind of like a pantomime horse, that style of suit would be the basis for many quadrupedal monsters going forward, even as late as the Triceratops from The Last Dinosaur, as heard on episode 39 of Earth Destruction Directive with Dr. Bill Robinson. He looks a lot like a sphinx, as he has four legs and wings, but whereas a sphinx normally has like a man's face, or at least a humanoid face, his face is clearly that of a dragon. It's got a long snout, um, you know, eyes set on the side, rows of teeth. So he's definitely like a Dragon-Sphinx hybrid. It's actually a very interesting design. I would really love to see Dodongo come back with modern suit technology because I think the design is a bit beyond what the technology could do in 66. Whereas now what they can do with the suit building and they can incorporate CG into it, I think Dodongo would look really, really menacing. I'm kind of thinking a little bit like Kaiser King Ghidorah from Godzilla Final Wars where he can rear up on his, on his hind legs and stomp things, you know? So, uh, a cool monster, and the Egyptian motif, like I said, the green and gold is very nice uh, color scheme, and uh, the idea of having a monster that's at least partially in inspired by a sphinx uh, for this uh, ancient, serve this ancient mummy, I think is really cool, and again, speaks to me as a mummy fanboy. Now, when Arashi and then Ide blind Dodongo, the eyes on the suit are actually covered up with red, um, I'm guessing latex rubber to look like they're wounded. It's actually, uh, they don't just blast the eye and say, no, now he's blinded. They actually cover it up. Now, I think that's a nice touch. I think it, it helps sell the idea that, that he really is blind. And, uh, you know, they're, they're not just doing it from a narrative standpoint. They're actually showing you as well. Now, after shooting out the second eye, Ide looks up at the Dango and says, How's that, Zatoichi? Now, uh, Zatoichi, for those who may not know, is this is a reference to the blind swordsman character Zatoichi, which is extremely popular in Japanese pop culture. There's been many uh, movies and anime and manga devoted to Zatoichi. And uh, if you go onto Amazon and search Zatoichi, you'll find quite a number of these. So uh, the joke here, obviously, is that Dodongo's now blind, just like Zatoichi. So uh, it, I thought it was just a, a little throwaway line from Ide that, you know, is a, a cultural thing that would be lost in translation here coming over to the States. Now, when Ultraman uses the Specium Ray, Dodongo does not simply blow up or just explode in a shower of sparks. He, at first, he resists it, and then he topples over. And then he uh, wriggles around in his death throes for like 20 seconds. It's actually, uh, actually it gets a little uncomfortable after a while because you're like, oh, you know, he's just dying out very slowly here. I guess this goes kind of with the ending as well, that this was kind of a tragic thing, that these monsters did not need to come back to life, that they were reanimated 
because of the um, you know the archaeologists doing their exploration and that this was a side effect of it. So it's kind of a little bit sad. We would get we would see this played with later as far as monsters dying being sad, but here it's just kind of a, more tragic than anything else. It, and every time that that we see a, something a monster you know in their death throes like this, it stands out and it definitely stands out for Dodongo. Now as Ultraman flies away. Hayata transforms back using a ring-shaped energy beam. Basically, Ultraman's flying, we see this like ring of energy come out of him, and then it forms into Hayata standing on the clifftop. So, uh, the implication being that he does, he flies away as Ultraman. Everyone thinks, oh, Ultraman's going back to space or wherever, but he actually just gets far enough away that it's secluded, and he uh, uses this thing to turn back into Hayata. I think that's very neat, kind of a practical explanation for the... We always see the transformation up we never see the transformation down so i thought that was really nice reminded me a little bit of um when professor allen and i were talking about the harvey ultraman comic series at one point uh, jack shindo his color timer ran out and he turned back into jack shindo so i thought that was neat now after he transforms back into hayata uh, at the end of the episode ide sees hayata standing on the mountain hayata's waving saying he's okay and ide wonders aloud hey maybe hayata could be ultraman now, this doesn't mean much in the context, it's just a joke, but knowing what we know now, it's actually kind of funny, because in the manga, Ide does know Hayata's secret identity, and has known for a while at the beginning of the manga. So I think it's funny that Ide, being the brains of the outfit, already has his suspicions about why Hayata runs off 30 seconds before Ultraman shows up. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those things, well, if you're so smart, why didn't you figure this out? Well, maybe he did figure it out. So. Overall... Definitely a creepy episode, more akin to Ultra Q than Ultra Man, with the emphasis more on horror than on science fiction. It's got a very strong universal monster vibe for most of the running length. It's got two really cool monsters, you know, a Japanese take on a classic mummy, and then Dodongo himself, as I've already described. And there's a lot of good scenes with the science patrol trying to solve the problem of the mummy being on the loose and then fighting Dodongo before Ultraman shows up. It's not just, oh, we shoot at it with the mecha, we can't do anything, we're in trouble, hey, here comes Ultraman, which you do get sometimes in a, you know, a series that runs as long as the Ultra series has. Also, just personally, it's very timely, I think, to get an episode featuring a classical monster as we are approaching Halloween as I record this. Overall, I really enjoyed this episode. I had remembered liking it from my first watch-through of the series, but I think I had forgotten just how much of it involved the Mummy Man and how classic the Mummy was in that uh, that part of the episode. So I really dug this. This is definitely uh, one of my favorites since we've uh, started covering the episodes here on the podcast. I really enjoyed this. So as I said, these are available on Hulu for free. Uh, go check it out. Give it a watch. You know, it's appropriate Halloween time viewing. You know, it's October, so all the podcasts are moving towards horror and monster content. So here you go. Here's a little classic monsters to go with your giant monsters uh, for, for this show. All right, I'm going to take a quick break, and we will be right back here on Earth Destruction Directive.
right, we are back on Earth Destruction Directive. And if you thought that after issue 20 of Shogun Warriors we were done with the Shoguns, you're not quite right, because what I have in my hands here is Fantastic Four number 226. And Fantastic Four 226 was cover dated January 1981 and released on or about October 28, 1980. Uh, credit to Mike at Mike's Amazing World of Comics at DCIndexes.com for that. Now, uh, this came out about four months after the publication of Shogun Warriors number 20. And who was writing Fantastic Four but Doug Mensch, who of course was the writer of all but one issue of Shogun Warriors. So Mensch used his uh, position here as the writer of Fantastic Four to wrap up the series of Shogun Warriors and kind of put an end cap on the series with this issue. Now our cover is um, it has a typical Marvel layout of the era. It's got the uh, black Marvel Comics Group bar across the top. And uh, they've this is uh, they've gotten past a little uh, the box out covers we got in the early 70s since we get a full uh, cover here. Uh, the corner box shows the headshots of uh, the first family of Marvel, um, and the, uh, the cover copy says the FF journey to Japan to face the Samurai Destroyer, and we get the t uh, titular Fantastic Four fighting against this giant robot, which we can assume is a Samurai Destroyer. And they appear to be in the streets of Japan because there's katakana on all these storefronts. And um, it's a, and then in the bottom we get a little circle saying featuring the final fate of three unexpected guest stars. Pretty neat cover. Um, the size of the Samurai Destroyer seems a little bit smaller than what we're used to with the Shoguns. The humans to him are larger in relative height than we were on all the Shogun covers. Um, now, the, the cover is by Bill Senkowitz with inking by Bob McLeod. And Senkowitz obviously didn't do any issues of Shogun Warriors, so it may just be his preference for how he wants to draw them. So, uh, But a good cover, and uh, I, I really... I, obviously, I enjoy anything involving giant monsters on the cover. Um, I think it's neat that the... The Samurai Destroyer's arm is blocking a little bit of the R in 4. I always like when they interact with the cover a bit. Uh, and I do I do really like Fantastic Four covers that feature all four members of the team in action. Reed is wrapped around the Samurai Destroyer's head and arm. Johnny is tossing fireballs. Uh, ben is behind with a car about to smash it into his knee. And Sue is using her force field to protect uh, a family that's about to get stepped on. Uh, so uh, it, it's I, I, and and the final fate tag at the bottom is really amusing. Overall, I think it's a pretty good cover, uh, but I'm again I may be more biased. So let's get into the book itself. Our writer is Doug Mensch. Our penciler is Bill Senkowitz. Our inkers are Pablo Marcus and Bruce D. Patterson. Letterer is James R. Novak. Our colorist is George Russos. Editor is Jim Salakrup. Editor in chief is Jim Shooter. Our title is The Samurai Destroyer, and our summary comes from the Marvel Wiki, uh, mostly. A couple of edits by me. Reed, Sue, Johnny, and Franklin are watching a television news broadcast to New York about a giant robot reported to have attacked a Czechoslovakian train and made off with its cargo of gold bullion. Reed surmises that it may have something to do with the Shogun Warriors, as they are the only people on Earth in possession of such technology and decides the situation is worthy of investigation. Meanwhile, as they are returning from a Broadway show, Ben and Alicia engage in a heart-to-heart -heart that attracts the attention of passers-by, the pair oblivious to the crowd that has gathered until they burst into spontaneous applause. Ben is clearly irritated by the crowd's interest 
and drags Alicia back to the Baxter building with impatient haste. As a couple arrive at the Fantastic Four's headquarters, Ben notices three mysterious figures loitering by the elevator, whose presence triggers an alert signal upstairs in the penthouse. As Reed, Sue, and Johnny scramble to investigate the alarm, they find that Ben has already dealt with the situation as he introduces the Fantastic Four's three guests, Richard Carson, Ilongo Savage, and Genji Odashu, the Shogun Warriors. Carson explains that the giant robot responsible for the bullion theft had already systematically sought out and destroyed each of the Shogun Warriors' own robots, hence the trio's need for the Fantastic Four's help. As Franklin wanders in with a transistor radio, it picks up a bulletin describing the sighting of a giant robot near Mount Fujimoto, and so the seven heroes are soon off on their way to Japan in the Fantastic Four's fabulous pogo plane. As the Fantastic Four try to deal with the giant robot which is rampaging, the Shogun Warriors investigate Sanctuary, the remains of Sanctuary anyway, their former base of operations, which is now being used as a storage facility for the robotic plunderer. The Fantastic Four are unable to halt the robot's rampage as it rips a bet off its foundations and absconds with it, returning to Sanctuary where it confronts the Shogun Warriors. The Samurai Destroyer, as the robot introduces itself, is actually a fourth Shogun Warrior-type robot, found half-built and constructed by its unnamed occupant, whose goal is nothing greater than wanton destruction and the acquisition of tremendous wealth. The combined efforts of the Fantastic Four and the Shogun Warriors are enough to overpower the pilot, who triggers the self-destruct on the Samurai Destroyer, destroying the robot and what is left of Sanctuary, though he is taken into custody by the heroes. For the warriors, however, the victory means that for them, their lives as superheroes are done, and they will return to the everyday heroics of so-called ordinary people. As they walk off into the sunset, Ben Grimm is forced to admit that he envies them. Next issue! Not even close. Something about brain parasites. So... Now, definitely a Fantastic Four comic here, obviously, and uh, all the, you know, and, and with the Sam, with the Shogun pilots as guest stars. So, uh, a pretty good issue, I thought. I'm not a, I'm more of a casual Fantastic Four fan. You know, shout out to Steven and Andrew over on Fantastic Cast. I love listening to their show because I learned so much about the FF. But uh, just reading this as a one-off, as someone who just finished reading the Sam, the uh, I keep saying Samurai, as someone who just finished reading the Shogun Warriors series, I thought this was a, a pretty fitting epilogue. But let's get into the notes. Now, page one is a nice splash page showing the Samurai Destroyer's hand jutting into a mountain and grabbing a hold of the train that's carrying all the gold. But kind of an odd coloring choice here by Russos. The train itself is all gold. Like, the engine, the stack, the uh, tin, the, the, the tender, all the cars, everything is gold. So um, I don't know if maybe there was some miscommunication about it being a gold train, as opposed to a train that is colored gold, but it's kind of an odd choice. It's a nice splash page, though, because I like the action of the Samurai Destroyer's hand smashing through the mountain and grabbing hold, and we see bits of the train bursting off from its grip. I think that's pretty nice. Turning over to page three... After Reed and Johnny uh, hear the uh, the news report about the giant robot, we get a footnote to Shogun Warriors number 19 and 20, appropriately enough. 
I do like in this scene that Johnny remembers the Shoguns and is not just a total blockhead. You know, sometimes, and, and again, uh, shout out to the Fantastic cast, sometimes you think that Johnny's just really dense and just doesn't get what's going on around him. And it's like, but, you know, we're, we're, we're stuck on Reed having to explain everything to us. But here, Johnny and Reed are on the same page, remembering that they're friends to Shoguns, who they helped out a few months ago. Then, of course, Reed suspects that the Shoguns might be involved, because clearly no other giant robots have ever existed in the Marvel Universe. You know, I think the X-Men would like to have a word with you, Mr. Richards. Smartest man in the room indeed, huh? Turning over to page four, um, Ben and Alicia have a very romantic moment that ends up getting spoiled by the theatergoers cheering, Bravo! Bravo! and clapping, and one guy yells, Now kiss it, you big lug! It's a good comedy bit. You know, the thing about uh, Ben Grimm is that he can be used for pathos and he can be used for comedy, and he works well at both of them. He's such a great character. You know, such a perfectly Marvel character in so many ways, you know. Uh, I think that there's there's a debate to be had that, yes, Spider-Man is the Marvel character, but for a long time it was the thing. And I, I still lean in that direction sometimes because he's just such a mix of... You know, the, the mundane and the fantastic, all in, in one. You know, he's got uh, he's got real-life problems, but he's got real-life joys, too. And that's what I always liked about Ben Grimm. And this scene was plays it for laughs, but it's still pretty funny. Uh, down at the bottom of the page, Franklin Richards is playing with his toys while the adults are talking. And one of the toys he has is a werewolf that looks a lot like Jack Russell, like suspiciously like Jack Russell, right down to the fact that he's wearing torn-up green pants. So that maybe that was a joke from Senkowitz. Uh, I don't remember if Bill Senkowitz ever worked on Werewolf by Night. I, I didn't think to look that up. Readers, if Bill Senkowitz worked on Werewolf by Night, please write in and let me know. But it, it's just funny that he's got a, apparently a Werewolf by Night toy that he's playing with. Turning out over to page 7, in the, um, in the lobby of the Baxter building, the Shoguns are having a lot of problems trying to get up the elevator. This is the FF's Famous elevator, as we've always heard about over on Fantastic Cast, eating hollowed-out belt buckles with laser beams in them to travel. Um, later on down the page, the, 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 the pilots look rather plain in their white, red, and black uniforms compared to the, the bright blue of the FF. But again, that's okay. They've, they've been beaten down, and Sinkowitz draws them uh, very much... You know, you can really see from their expressions and the kind of downtrodden look that in their stance that they've had a rough couple of days here with their robots being destroyed and, you know, trying to basically, I guess, wing it to New York to um, to get help. Now, notice that's never explained how Carson and Genji get from California or how Savage gets all the way from Madagascar to New York, how they meet up and go find help. But, um, you know, they, they clearly have been through the ringer. He draws them with very heroic proportions, which is okay. We saw this, um, you know, in that the, that one fill-in issue. <sighs> and who did the art? I don't remember who did the art, but the, the one where they're fighting against the Yakuza. And it's different than what Trimpy does, but it's not a bad depiction by any stretch. It's just I was, I'm very used to Trimpy's uh, almost minimalist style, whereas here, you know, Carson, is he's in the foreground. He looks very buff. Turning over to page 10 as we begin the flashback, at the top we get the silhouettes of the three pilots, and they're in all oranges and reds, and I think it's a nifty way to show that the flashbacks are starting. Also, the flashback panels themselves, instead of being the, you know, rounded, or they're actually almost jagged, like they're painful memories that we're seeing, and they're all kind of fitting together like, uh, like broken pieces of glass, which is actually kind of interesting. 
In the first part of the flashback, Dina makes an appearance, and I can only imagine that she is thrilled that Genji is living with her and Richard in California because she was so happy at all the time Richard was spending with Genji. She must be beside herself that she's living with them now. I can't imagine what that is. Unfortunately, Dina not wielding a shotgun in any of these panels that she appears in. I like the menacing silhouette that we see above uh, Carson's house of the Samurai Destroyer. Also, that the rubble at the bottom of the page is extremely generic. There's no way you could look at that panel and identify it. Yes, that's Combatra, that's Rydine. Obviously, we're, we're up against the uh, license here where they no longer have the license to these robots. So they, they can't say their names or anything like that. The only time the term Shogun Warriors appears is in the footnote. They... Uh, you know, they, they, they say the warriors a lot. They can't say the Shogun warriors. So, unfortunate, but, you know, it's a reality of the, the deal that it do happens with licensed comics. And, hey, at least they were able to use the pilots, so we do get this story. Uh, on page 11, as we get the Longo Savages flashback, Judith is mentioned, but unfortunately not shown. Would have been nice to see Judith one last time. And, again, the wreckage is so generic, there's no way you could identify it as Dangard Ace. But, again, that's just a function of the uh, story. Um, page 11, panel 5. Franklin comes in listening to his radio, clearly tuned to WPSR, Plot Point Specific Radio, copyright Luke Jackanetti and William Mack Lee, 1999. We were using that term back when we were undergrads at Clemson. Uh, unfortunately, we never quite got the, uh, you know expositional news network out there as much like uh, Mike Bailey did. But this is on the radio, so that makes it WPSR as far as I'm concerned. On page 12, the Pogo Plane makes an appearance. I love the Pogo Plane. It's uh, just such a silly name for what's essentially just a rocket that can go up and down. But Pogo Plane, so that made me, that made me smile. Uh, panels 4 through 7 on this page, the pilots discuss all that they have lost. And Genji says the line, maybe our careers as agents of the light just weren't meant to be. I thought this was a nice little bit of character insight from Mensch about uh, Genji and the other pilots. You know, do you choose this life to be this hero, or do you simply accept it as what's something that comes along? And when that's taken away from you, how do you react to that? Do you mourn its loss, or do you accept that, you know, that part of your life is done and you've got to move on? I think it's actually, uh, you know, it... it it, it serves a good purpose from a narrative standpoint, not just to say, oh, okay, you know, we're wrapping up these loose plot lines, sort of, from Shogun Warriors, but we're also using these characters to make a statement about, you know, the, the idea of superheroics in general. It's like, why is that, you know, is are you, by the nature of getting powers, are you like Spider-Man and you have this great responsibility? Well, what happens if you lose them? Do you no longer have that responsibility? What do you do? And after you've experienced all these highs, I mean... You know, the Shoguns went into space multiple times. They fought Dr. Demonicus on that giant satellite. They saved the Earth from being eradicated. How do you go back and, and leave that behind? So these, it, you know, he doesn't, uh, Mensch doesn't come out and answer these questions for us at this point. He just puts it out there for us to think about. I thought that was actually a really nice, uh, nice bit of writing from Mensch. Over on page 14, we get a splash page of the Samurai Destroyer in all his glory. Pretty neat design. He's very thin, almost spindly, years before spindly robots would become popular. Um, Senkowitz does a really nice job in this page as we see uh, the, the, the Destroyer. He's kicking a building down, and he's elbowing another building. He's brandishing his big uh, electrically charged katana blade. 
and uh, jets are flying in at him, and we see people running away in terror. It's actually a really nice page. Would have loved to see Trimpy do this, to be honest with you, because it's such a, uh, you know, he specialized in those splash pages of the, the Shogun's doing their thing, so it would have been nice to see his take on it, but I really like this page. This this would look really cool, um, uh, you know, not as a poster, but this panel looks just really great, and there's a good use of the splash panel. About the only complaint I have is that the, uh, the, the, the civilians running away are wearing Chinese peasant farmer hats, which seems a little out of place in a Japanese city, but, you know, it was 1980. We'll let it slide, I guess. Pages 15 and 16, the FF spring into action, and uh, I love it because they work as a team. I That's always a thing that's great about the Fantastic Four, more so even than any other uh, superhero team, is because the FF's membership has largely remained the same. Now, yes, I understand there were periods when, you know, She-Hulk replaced... Uh, uh, the thing or, or whatnot. It's, you think the Fantastic Four, you think of these four characters. And so when they're fighting all together as a team, it's just this classic Marvel thing. You know, it's always good to see the FF working together, all four of them. And we get to see that. Uh, it's classic FF in that sense. Everybody uses their own powers through this battle as a, um, you know, not only attack the Samurai Destroyer and try to distract him, but also help people and get them to out of harm's way. I thought that was really nicely done. Now, over on pages 18 and 19, we get the origin of the Samurai Destroyer. I actually kind of like that we don't ever get the pilot's name. It's not important, you know, and he's not going to just go out and reveal his name because, you know, they don't need to know that. So he's just an anonymous dude. I think that's actually pretty neat. You know, he doesn't have, you know, he just happens to be a explorer or adventurer who happened to find Sanctuary and then found this half-finished Shogun, and then somehow it's very convenient that he managed to find it, and uh, then managed to build this uh, machine up to become the Samurai Destroyer. But again, it's it may be a little hard to swallow, but otherwise you don't have a story. And I do like his very base motivations of just making money and uh, and doing whatever he wants with, with a giant robot. I mean, we can all kind of relate to that. You know, not everybody wants to rule the world like Dr. Doom. Some just want, you know, to be able to steal everything they want and live comfortably and be left alone. So I can understand that motivation. So for a one-shot FF villain, he's kind of forgettable, but um, for the villain that the Shogun Warriors have to face, I think he's pretty neat. It would have been cool if we could have seen this guy actually fight against the actual Shoguns and not just the pilots, but alas, was not meant to be. Turning over to page 21, the first panel. This is a long, or a tall panel, I should say, taking up about half the page, but uh, width-wise, but going all the way from top to bottom. Great panel showing scale and sizes, and I really think that Samurai Destroyer is a little bit smaller than Raideen, Dangard, Ace, and Combatra were, because we see him standing looking into the roof, a ruined roof of Sanctuary, and we see the pilots down below, and then the, pi the Samurai Destroyer's pilot is sitting on the Destroyer's shoulder. Now, it's a really cool look that he's just sitting on the shoulder very nonchalantly with his legs folded. Crisscross applesauce, as they say in the preschools nowadays. Um, but he's clearly smaller than the... Uh, he's clearly larger there than he would have been sitting on the shoulder of one of the Shoguns from the actual book. So, it might be intentional. It might just be Senkowitz's... Uh, um, approach for depicting a giant robot, so I'm just going to say that the Samurai Destroyer is a little bit smaller and just go with that, I think. Pages 23 through 26, it's the big battle. I like the FF again. 
using all their powers together. And then Reed works the plan that he had heard Franklin playing before uh, with his toys, talking about uh, the story of David and Goliath. So Reed works on a plan involving that, where they all, um, you know, they hit the samurai destroyer in the face, and then they try to trip him and pull him down. Because as anyone who watches wrestling knows, you're all the same height when you're on your back on the canvas. So um, it's okay for the pilots, I think, to do little here, because they don't have any mecha, and they don't have anything to fight with. So there's not much they can do to be of assistance. I suppose they could have gotten into the pogo plane, but I don't think the pogo plane has weapons on it, so that would have been of limited value in a fight. And when you get right down to it, this is the Fantastic Four's book. They should be the ones taking care of the problem. This was the complaint I had about Shogun Warriors number 20, in that the Shoguns didn't solve the problem. The FF solved the problem, and I didn't like that. It, to me, that was kind of a waste. It's like in their own book, they should solve it. Same goes here. So I'm cool with the FF uh, taking out the uh, the Samurai Destroyer. On page 27, panel 1, uh, as the um, the pilot is going to use the self-destruct to blow up the Samurai Destroyer, Carson leaps at him and elbows him right in the jaw with the arm that's in a sling. So good to see Carson get in one good hit on that in that fight. And then later on down that page, panel four, everything blows up real good. This is a nice panel, uh, nice, um, great inking and uh, coloring work here to really show the Samurai Destroyer exploding and taking the rest of Sanctuary with it. So everything involving the Shogun Warriors is well and truly gone at this point. No coming back from this, uh, this explosion from the looks of it. Finally, uh, pages 28 and 30. Uh, when the music's over, turn off the lights. You know, uh, the Doors said it in their song, and I think it's pretty appropriate here. For the Shogun pilots, you know, the fight is over. So you get to go back to their normal lives. Carson gives a little monologue about heroism, which I think is pretty nice. He says, um, Genji's right. Besides, who says you can't be heroic on your own without a giant robot? Heroism is a relative thing, and it can be done in little ways on a small scale, a human scale. Even if we never get a chance to prove our heroism again, well, what's so bad about being normal? And he says to Reed Richards, stuntman, test pilot, marine biologist, there's something to be said for those occupations, isn't there? And Reed reaches out an arm and pats him on the shoulder. He says, yes, Mr. Carson, there is. There certainly is. And um, actually what's funny here is that uh, Sue and Genji talk about the stolen prototype that Genji was flying when she first got taken. It's like, good job, mensch. Excellent job to bring that back, and I have to ask, because I don't remember, where is that? Is that Was that still in Sanctuary? Did it just get blowed up real good? So there's no way they're getting that prototype plane back. I have no idea. And then the, the second-to-last panel shows the Shogun pilots literally walking off into the sunset, and uh, as the FF look on, and, and then Ben Grimm looks on and says pretty much all there is to say. He goes, yeah, kind of makes me wonder, what it'd be like to be in their shoes right now? Being a freak like the thing ain't so bad no more. I've gotten used to it. Probably even miss it if it was taken away from me. But I gotta admit, in a way, a big way, I really envy him. I like that. I like that bit. You know, when it's okay for the super team to break up and go back to their normal lives because their their job is done. The fight for them is done, like I said. And whereas for the Fantastic Four, clearly the fight's never really going to end. And so that idea that Ben can't go and have that normal life with Alicia that he clearly wants, that we saw earlier, 
You know, it's something that even though he's okay with being the thing, he's okay in his own skin at this point. You know, he's been the thing almost uh, 20 years by this point in real life publishing time, but he still knows that he can never lead that normal life and that the pilots have just been given a chance to go back to their normal lives. You know, Carson can go back to living with Dina and being a stuntman. Genji can go back to being a pilot and uh, along go back to being a marine biologist with Judith. But, you know, there he's never going to get that chance, and neither are the rest of them. I thought it was a nice a nice finale to the story by Mensch. I really did like that. So overall, I thought this was a fun but kind of slight done-in-one issue with the Fantastic Four. It's very nice as an epilogue to the admittedly hasty ending of Shogun Warriors. Um, I can see why FF fans dislike this issue, and, and I've seen that uh, online a bunch. It's like, ah, you can skip it, it's just about some, some giant robots. It's not really a very strong Fantastic Four story, um, but for a Shogun Warriors fan, I think you need to get it. And there's some nice FF stuff in here for a casual Fantastic Four fan like me. I mean, I don't have every issue. I've only got, I think, about six or seven issues of Fantastic Four. So to me, it's neat to see them working as a, as a team and to see the domestic side of things and Ben going on a date with Alicia and the pogo plane and stuff like that. That is still cool to me just because I haven't been exposed to a ton of it. I mean, I know it. Every Marvel reader of a certain age knows all this FF stuff. But just reading it to me, it, it was a pleasure from that standpoint. It's not a world beater, but I do like that Doug Mensch was able to address these characters and give them a proper send-off. The artwork is pretty good, although it's still unusual for me to see the pilots drawn by anybody but uh, Trimpy. That's not taking anything away from Bill, Bill Sankowitz, because I think his art's very nice. He's much better suited to the Fantastic Four than Trimpy was to the FF when he drew them. He's just, you know, and his Samurai Destroyer looks really good. I would have liked to have seen his take on the Shogun Warrior robots, because I'm sure they would have been, uh, you know, a different approach than what Trimpy did. Fortunately, that wasn't the case, but we still get the Samurai Destroyer, which is a cool robot design, and Sankowitz does a nice job with that. Um, now, the only pilot who would appear again is Genji Odashu. Now, she appeared in Avengers 300 in a one-page backup piece showing all the Avengers HQ support staff, and she was on staff as a pilot, along with, bizarrely enough, John Jameson, better known as the Man-Wolf, son of J. Jonah Jameson. Now, that is the only other appearance of any of these characters. I will not be covering Avengers 300 because she doesn't actually appear in the story. She just appears in that little backup piece. So, uh, this is it, folks. That's the end of the Shogun Warriors at Marvel Comics. So, overall, I thought it was a heck of a ride, even including this FF issue in there. I had a lot of fun reading it, and I hope everybody out there had fun listening to it. And uh, as we put a, a capstone on this little era of Earth Destruction Directive, and um, I hope that everybody, like I said, I just hope everybody liked it, because I had a lot of fun with it. So, all right, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back here on Earth Destruction Directive. Hello, friend. This is Christopher Willette with a very important safety message for you. Beware of monsters. Yes, friend, beware of monsters. International best-selling author Jeremy Robinson, along with BewareOfMonsters.com, feel this message is so important they've commissioned me to start a podcast to get the word out. Please, Beware of Monsters. Each week, the Beware of Monsters podcast will speak with experts and authors on the subject of monsters. 
monsters of literature, of film, of comic books, of video games, monsters from everywhere. Beware of monsters. You can find more information in your iTunes or Podcatcher searches. Beware of monsters. This podcast is in its infancy, but you can join now and watch it grow like a mad experiment in a secret lab in an underground bunker somewhere in New England as it gets out of control, destroying all around it in its quest to control the world! Friends, beware of monsters. Each week, presented by Jeremy Robinson. BewareOfMonsters.com. All right, we are back here on Earth Destruction Directive. And now it's time to do some listener feedback. I've got some emails here today for uh, from listeners out there. If you would like to send feedback to Earth Destruction Directive, you can send email to EarthDestructionDirective at Yahoo.com, as well as hit me up on Facebook or Twitter. You can also, of course, leave an iTunes review if you want. Just listen to the outro to the show, and it'll have all the contact information. So let's get right into it. Uh, first, I want to give a shout-out to uh, listener Christopher Wollett. And uh, Christopher is the host of the Beware of Monsters podcast, which can be found at bewareofmonsters.com. Now, in the last episode, I was talking about the American Gothic Press um, comic adaption of Jeremy Robinson's book, Project Nemesis. And I'd said that I was looking for a copy, looking to get a copy of the book to read before I read the comics adaptation. And Christopher reached out to me and very coolly sent me a paperback copy of Project Nemesis, which I am about 90% done with. I have been tearing through this book. It is fantastic. So uh, props to Christopher for sending that book along to me. Please go check out the Beware of Monsters podcast. It's very cool. Uh, it's got a lot of interviews and a lot of uh, you know really good content on there. They just got started, so uh, be sure to check them out. And as far as Project Nemesis, I also want to mention that I can be heard on episode 60 of the Quarterbin podcast with Professor Alan Middleton discussing the first issue of Project Nemesis. So uh, please go check that out. Of course, the Quarterbin podcast is available on the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com. And I said that was episode 60, where the professor was talking about um, advanced review copies of some comics he's received, and Project Nemesis was one of them uh, that I joined uh, in discussion with for him. So please go check that out. Again, big thanks to Christopher, and big thanks to Professor Allen for having me on the show. Now, our first email comes from Robert Ludwig, and the subject is Wizard World Des Moines. And Robert writes, Luke, while this does not have a lot to do with giant monsters, I wanted to send this to you. He goes, uh, first he talks about how Mike Grell was the writer and artist of a James Bond comic, and uh, I'll respond to you um, off-air about this, Robert, because it doesn't have really anything to do with uh, um, Daikaiju, but this was really cool. I didn't know about this, so I will send you an email back about this. But um, he does also get into this. He goes, At Wizard World Des Moines, Jason David Frank, Tommy, the Green Ranger, was there. I did not get a picture with him, but I have some of him. He had a panel on Sunday for a karate demonstration slash class. He talked mostly about his history in martial arts, and if you want to start, find one that suits you. He was very positive. He then had the kids come up and showed them a few simple moves and how to show respect for the sensei. My son, Seven, did participate after originally not wanting to. He was smiling and having fun. 
After the kids' class slash demonstration, he then asked for adults. My son had me go out to do this. My 40-plus body did not bend in all the ways it was supposed to, but it was fun. I will try to get you some pictures slash videos soon. Anyway, just wanted to shoot you a quick line. Keep them stomping. Robert. Robert, that's a great email. That's a great story of you and your son at Wizard World Des Moines. And I'm sorry I'm only getting this email now. I'm, I'm a bit behind. But And uh, Jason David Frank, everything I've ever seen with him, he's always been very positive and upbeat and very um, honest about uh, martial arts and the, the positive aspects of martial arts. So I, I'm glad to see that you guys had a good time. I'd love to see some pictures of your son and you trying to uh, do some uh, karate with Jason David Frank. I just have this image of him doing that, those jumping spin kicks he always did, the opening credits as the Green Ranger, just seeing... Uh, I'm trying to picture myself doing that, and it's not pretty. So <laughs> thank you very much, Robert, for writing in. All right, our next email comes from uh, my brother Jason Jackanetti, whom, of course, is now one of the regular hosts over on the Vault of Startling Monster Horror Tales from Terror. And Jay writes in with the subject, Toy News. He goes, hey man, just some quick toy updates. From Horror Hound, issue number 52, the 2015 Toy Fair NECA reveal included plans for solar-powered body knockers, including Jason, Freddy, and Godzilla. And uh, I'm guessing these are ones that are in the... They're, they bop back and forth once they're in the sun, kind of like those little sunflowers you see at the dollar store. Metacom has issued a 400% scale, which is going for $150, and a 1,000% scale going for $600, Godzilla Bear Brick, to celebrate Godzilla turning 60. Now, Bear Bricks, if you're not familiar with them, they're kind of like how the, the Pop Funk figures have that kind of stylized look with the big heads. Bear Bricks take that kind of to the next level by making them look like bears. So check that out. You can find bear bricks for all sorts of different um, pop culture uh, characters, including Godzilla. Now, these oversized ones, they're, uh, they're a, bit, uh, a bit interesting because normally the bear bricks are, you know, normal collectible size. So if you want something really big for Godzilla, that, that makes sense. Jay continues, Toy Nami finally releasing Shogun Warriors toys they showed way back in 2013. The first is the 19-inch tall Godzilla, retail for $239.99, in the spring of 2015 with his firing fist and fire breathing, just like the original. Also, their 12-inch Godzilla vs. Biolanti statue is limited to $500 and is going for $400 and is currently shipping. You know, that, I remember when Toy Nami showed that because I want to say that they, besides Godzilla... And I've seen this Toinami reissue Godzilla, and it's very cool. It's way out of my price range currently, but I've definitely got to keep an eye out for it because it is so cool. I want to say they showed a Rydeen also, but it, I don't remember. I might be thinking of something else, somebody else that was showing a Rydeen reissue as well, which would be really cool to get a, uh, my hands on a, you know, a Jumbo Machinda-style Rydeen to go with Godzilla. Uh, Jay continues from Horror Hound number 53. Diamond Select will be releasing an 18-inch Godzilla bank based on his 1974 look. For $39.99. He says, enjoy, signed Jay. Uh, as far as those banks, they, they've been, Diamond Select's been putting those out fairly regularly. They're pretty neat. You know, it's uh, if you want just to uh, use them as a statue, you don't have to use them as a bank. They're a nice little vinyl statue uh, for a decent price. Uh, they have several different Godzillas. They have a King Ghidorah. Uh, and they're, they're, they're worth checking out. And if you want to repaint them, being vinyl, they're, they're easy to clean up and get ready to repaint if you want to go that route as well. Uh, Jay, thank you very much for writing in. Uh, lots of not-safe-for-wallet news in that email, so much appreciated. Our next email comes from Michael Staley. And uh, you may know Michael as the host of the Invincible Ironcast Classics Edition podcast. And uh, his email is titled, Retroactive Feedback. 
which is better than radioactive feedback, but, you know, sometimes you do what you gotta do. And Mike writes, hey Luke, still working my way through the old episodes and wanted to comment on your look at IDW's Godzilla comic from 2012. I admit I wasn't particularly interested in the comic initially, mostly due to bad experiences with English-made Godzilla properties, but your reviews drew me in, and now I'm thinking I need to go find those issues. Uh, yeah, the volume two, the second volume ongoing from IDW, simply titled Godzilla, uh, I would recommend those heartily. I think it's collected in three trade paperbacks, and possibly one oversized, like, hardcover. Because only Ryan 12 issues, but I would definitely check that out. It was a lot better than Kingdom of Monsters, and it was really just a fun, you know, exciting story all the way through, and it really made us, got us, you know, um, interested in and invested in those human characters, so it wasn't just, here's some human characters that can talk while the monsters fight. This really was a human story with the monsters, and I thought it was really good, so I would recommend it. Mike continues, sorry if you brought this up and I've missed it or haven't gotten to it yet, but what are your thoughts on the new Japanese Godzilla movie coming out next year? I've never gotten the chance to see a Japanese Godzilla film in theaters since I missed out on Godzilla 2000 when it came out, so I'm pretty pumped to potentially see this one on the big screen, provided I can manage to save up money for the trip to Japan. Lol. Yeah, the, the new Godzilla film is now being called Shin Godzilla, or, uh, you know, real Godzilla, true Godzilla, however you want to translate Shin. I'm, I'm, it's very interesting to me that Toho is actively working on a film at the same time that Legendary has the license to the character here in the U.S. The last time that an American company had a license to make Godzilla films, of course, was TriStar in the late 90s. And part of, I don't know if it was an agreement or simply the way Toho wanted to go, was that they were not going to do anything while TriStar was active. They were going to let TriStar kind of control the character for a little while. Of course, what ended up happening is after Godzilla 98 came out, and, and response, I mean, the movie made good money, but it wasn't the, you know, if you'll pardon the pun, the monster hit that I think either TriStar or Toho were looking for from it. And the more the negative fan response to the portrayal of the monster, uh, you know, Gino, Zilla, whatever you want to call him, in the film, Toho almost immediately went into production with the film that would become Godzilla Millennium or Godzilla 2000 here in the States. So perhaps this was Toho trying to get ahead of the game, you know, even though the uh, the legendary Godzilla got a much better critical response in Godzilla 98, and still did good money, can, you know, you know again, it did cross the, the, the magic number of 200 million, maybe this was their way of kind of holding on to it, you know, just in case things turn out not so great down the line, that they've already got things in the pipe, that's the way I'm thinking of it. We don't have a whole lot of information on it yet, just some basic uh, pre-production type stuff, so, I mean, so far it sounds really good, uh, I'm very interested in uh, in following it, I've been following the news as best I can on, like, tohokingdom.com, that's usually the best uh, source for uh, Godzilla film production news that I find, uh, so, and, uh, so I'd, I'd check it out, I mean, I'm interested in it, certainly, and, uh, I, I, you know, so we'll see what happens with it. I, it's, it's neat that Godzilla is a strong enough character that he can support two different film franchises at once. I mean, that's pretty cool. I mean, you're talking about, like, James Bond level of uh, strength here with, um, of course, Octopussy and Never Say Never Again. So we'll see. Hopefully it'll turn out better than, than that particular little conflict. As far as Godzilla 2000, I, I actually did see Godzilla 2000 in the theater, so I'm sorry that, that you missed out on it. Um, God willing, if you had seen it, you wouldn't have seen it with the fat kid going, Dad! 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 For the entire 
running length. So uh, hopefully we'll all get a chance to see Shin Godzilla in the theaters um, in a couple of years when it comes out. Mike finishes up saying, Anyway, looking forward to continuing through Earth Destruction Directive. Keep up the good work. Signed, Mike Staley, host of Invincible Ironcast Classics Edition. Thank you very much for writing in, Mike. I appreciate you taking the time to do so. And I would definitely recommend Invincible Ironcast Classics Edition. It's a very fun kind of short-form show where Mike's been taking a look at the early days of Invincible Iron Man in the pages of Tales of Suspense, and it's always a blast to listen to. Uh, they're, you know, These aren't the most world-beater of stories, and Mike uh, you know, has fun with them, so definitely check that out. And that show can be found at invincibleironcast.podbean.com. So definitely give them a listen. Thank you very much for writing in, Mike. And I hope you're enjoying uh, Earth Destruction Directive as you've been continuing your listen through. And our last email for the night comes from my good friend, Mr. Adam Tebow, and is entitled Toku Themes. Adam writes, Greetings, Stompmaster. I really enjoyed your recent show about your favorite tokusatsu themes. I was just thinking the other day how infectious some of them are, getting stuck in my head even though I don't speak Japanese. Amen to that! I mean, good gracious some of these are catchy. Not an idea what any of the lyrics are on most of them. Two of my favorites are both from recent Super Sentai series. The themes for Go Busters and Tokyuga both do a great job of getting you pumped for multi-chromatic action in the coming episode and tend to stick with me for days afterwards. Anyways, thanks for another great episode. Keep them stomping. Adam Tebow. And of course, Adam is one of the co-hosts over at Days of Future Cast, which you can find at daysoffuturecast.libson.com. Uh, so go give them a listen. Uh, yeah, I mean, Tokuga especially, because Tokuga is such a bright and kind of bouncy show. Uh, about imagination and the theme is kind of really upbeat and and uh you know it, it very kind of power pop sort of sound and actually what's really funny is on the christmas episode of tokyuga one of the things that the the tokyugas did was they actually had a live performance on the rainbow line train of the band singing their song so I thought that was really meta and funny at the same time. Really hilarious. So, um, yeah, I mean, that's the thing of one of the great things about being a tokusatsu fan is you get access to all these, you know, uh, crazy J-pop songs that serves as the, the uh, you know, openings and outros to these shows. And it's its own little kind of subculture of tokusatsu theme music that, you know, uh, it's similar in a lot of ways, I guess, to anime themes and anime, you know, fans get to enjoy that. But as tokusatsu fans, we're even more niche than the anime fans are. So thank you very much for writing in, Adam. And again, if you want to get in touch, please send your email to um, earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. And uh, I will read, of course, read all feedback here on the show. So, all right, now it comes that time in every episode where we ask, what are we covering next time? And next time out, now that we have completely finished with Shogun Warriors, we are introducing a new segment to the show, and we are going to be taking a look, a long-awaited look, at Marvel's Godzilla 
comic series from 1977. Now, I am going to go all out with this episode. If you thought I was stealing content from the Fantastic Cast, covering an, ep- an issue of Fantastic Four, I'm going to go one step beyond that next episode, and we are going to focus exclusively on Marvel's Godzilla number 1 next time out. So, I've got a lot planned for this episode, covering uh, this debut in American comics of the King of Monsters, so I hope you all will enjoy it. So please come back next time when we take a look at Marvel Godzilla number 1, and until that time, time, keep them stomping. This has been Earth Destruction Directive, a Dai Kaiju podcast, produced and created by me, Luke Giaconetti, as part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, available at twotruefreaks.com. This is a fan work celebrating the history and culture of Japanese giant monsters. All movies, TV shows, comic books, characters, and other intellectual property is copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended or implied. If you'd like to send an email to the show, you can email me at earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. I respond to all emails, and if you send in some comments, I'll read them on the show. All episodes of Earth Destruction Directive can be found at twotruefreaks.com. You can also find the show on iTunes. Just search for Earth Destruction Directive. You can even leave an iTunes review if you want. You can get in touch with the show on Facebook. Just search for Earth Destruction as the first name and Directive as the last name. You can also get in touch with me on Twitter with the handle LJacone. That's L-J-A-C-O-N-E. And if you want to buy something discussed on the show, head on over to twotruefreaks.com and click on the Amazon.com link on the front page. Any items you buy during your session on Amazon.com will help keep the lights on, and it won't cost you anything extra. Thanks for listening, and be sure to come back next time for more city-stomping fun on Earth Destruction Directive. Well, it's big and terrible. More frightening than I ever thought possible.